Welcome to the 2024 Litigation Podcast Series, where our litigation and dispute resolution team shares its predictions and recommendations for the business year ahead, brought to you by Minter Ellison Rudd Watts. My name is Gillian Service. I'm the Division Leader for Litigation in Auckland, and I'm joined here with June Hardacre, who is my fellow in partner in crime in the employment team at Mintrelson Rod Watt. And in today's podcast, uh, we're going to be discussing the employment landscape and what we're expecting to see play out in this space as we move through 2024. Now, before we begin, please note that nothing we are discussing today is legal advice, and all information in this podcast is correct at the date of recording, which is Thursday, the 25th of January, which, as a Scot, and to all you Scots out there, is Burns Day. Happy birthday, Robbie Burns. Now, June Hardacre, thank you for joining us. You are so welcome. It's always a pleasure to be in the seat with you, Gillian. Now, before we begin, let's get some context. Now, late last year, we have our new government in place and they made some changes. Uh, what can we expect? What can employers expect in 2024? Well, we've already seen some of those changes come into effect. So two of the the key election promises for what uh, National and its coalition partners were going to do in the first 100 days, they've already come in. Late last year, we would have seen the reintroduction of the statutory 90-day trial period and the scrapping of the fair pay agreement legislation, which for those people who were involved in drafting would have been you know, watching many years worth of work go down the drain. But perhaps let's talk firstly about the 90-day trial period because we've already had clients come in and say to us, what can we do? Um, we want to get it back in there. Um, we want to have that opportunity to dismiss within that first 90 days without uh, having to go through that personal grievance process for unjustified dismissal. Before this, there, some employers were still able to do that, weren't they, the smaller employers? Yeah, that's right, Gillian. So... For employers uh, with 19 or fewer employees, they still had access to that regime. But what they've done is they've reintroduced it for employers of all sizes, which is actually not new law. As we know, prior to the previous Labour government, we had this in place for every single employer. That was reversed um, in 2017 when we had the first Labour government come in. So a bit of a case of back to the future. Yeah, funny that. Um, And it's not particularly unusual for employment lawyers to actually see that flip-flop between laws. We saw it with a lot of the union laws that came in to play last time around as well with the reintroduction of the 30-day period where employers were required to employ employees on the dominant collective for the first 30 days. So yeah, again, it's not unusual to see that flip-flop and frankly, we're back to the flop that we were in. So when we've been drafting those clauses, it's actually, you know, pretty similar to what it was previously. So What else can we expect to see? It's actually quite interesting that there hasn't been a lot of commentary on major employment changes outside of those first two promises that have cropped up and have actually been dealt with. So we've got Brooke Van Velden, who is ACT's Deputy Leader as the Workplace Relations and Safety um, Minister. Obviously ACT's been more outspoken than some of the other parties on what it wants to see in terms of employment relations reform. But nothing groundbreaking when, when we're actually looking at what the government plans to actually implement going forward. There's a possibility of changes to the personal grievance regime. So those could be amendments to the remedies regime to prevent reinstatement 
from being a remedy where it's now the primary remedy and also imposing a high income threshold. So barring those earners who earn above a certain amount to actually access that personal grievance regime. And that takes a a bit of a thread from Australia because Australia's got a similar system on that income threshold, doesn't it? Exactly. I think it's around Aussie dollars, 150,000. So they've already got that bar, but there hasn't been a whole lot of discussion about this. And frankly, as we've seen lately, there's some bigger ticket items on the new government's agenda than probably what we could see as tinkering around with Mm. the fringes of the employment relations landscape. And when it comes to uh, thinking more broadly, looking to you yourself as someone who has recently had her second daughter, parental leave, what's on the minds there? Are we going to see any changes? Potentially. Uh, So Nicola Willis had proposed amendments the Parental Leave and Employment Protection Act, which is a bit of a mouthful, which would allow parents to split their parental leave. So taking it in chunks, alternating between the two parents, which will be quite interesting to see whether that comes into play and how many people would then actually take that up, Mm. simply because it becomes quite difficult to administer if you've got people, you know, wanting to take two months off and then alternate between the two, Mm. practically what that will mean for employees who are trying to manage that, but also for employers trying to administer that. Yeah, I was speaking to a client before Christmas, a larger employer, and one of the questions was, yeah, how would that work in practice if you think about a team where someone's there and then they're not there and then they're back again? And then, you know, it's different to what I think a lot of employers have been used to, which is when someone's away, you can bring in a backfill or you distribute the work around, amongst others. You, know, you, you find your way through it, but it's for a period of time and then there's certainty for that period of time. I could certainly see quite a few businesses starting to think about the challenge of how would you make that work in practice? And I don't think anyone disagrees with the intent behind it, right, which is to give more flexibility to parents returning to work. But it'll be interesting whether this is actually manageable and workable. And in light of what the government's got on its agenda, that is something that's dealt with within this term. When you talk about what's on the agenda and and you're hinting there about the more burning issues, immigration has been a big conversation in New Zealand for many, many years. Tell us about what thinking is there, what what could we expect from an immigration perspective? So at the moment, there's been murmurings of, of changes to those settings. We've seen actually a really interesting development with that liquidation of BLE, which is a major recruitment of migrant workers in New Zealand. And when I was looking at some of the, the news reports that had come out, I think it was, you know, a thousand plus migrant workers who were left without visas, without the ability to work in New Zealand. And we saw Erica Stanford, who is the immigration minister, take steps to ensure that, you know, those migrant workers could be placed onto temporary visas. So whether we'll see uh, an increased focus in bringing seasonal workers in to help plug some of the gaps and, you know, target some of those areas where we are struggling to get workers in, there's going to be a challenge there with New Zealand First and their approach to immigration, which is at somewhat of a contrast with that approach to to importing labour but also in the broader labour market where you know we've already seen a bit of a slowdown in job applications businesses thinking more about restructuring potentially downsizing so I don't know whether immigration will be as burning an issue as it has been over the last couple of years where 
we've seen, you know, major issues with people trotting off, you know, whether it's across the Tasman or to, you know, inverted commas, greener pastures in, in Europe and the UK. But I just don't know if we're going to be there. So whilst there was a lot of talk about immigration settings initially and creating an easier pathway for, for certain sectors, that will probably be the case, but it'll also be making sure that we're eating up the labour that we've got in New Zealand, which may be coming into a bit of a surplus, which wasn't there before. Mm. Now, no conversation about what you could expect in 2024 for an employer is complete without thinking about the Holidays Act. Your favourite topic. <laughs> that much and maligned feel, piece of legislation. We feel just like a broken record saying... It might come. It mm. might come. The task force has met again. Yeah, so back end of last year, we, we know there's a bill and we know it's drafted and we know it's <laughs> sitting there and not much is happening with it. Do you get any sense that this will be pushed forward in 2024? When we talk about, you know, pieces of legislation that will, you know, get votes or be important for parties, I just don't think the Holidays Act is, is that. Mm. As you know, it is so complicated. It has been a challenge for employers and payroll providers, certainly a lot of employees for some time now, and it's not mentioned anywhere Mm. in the coalition documents. It's not really been picked up that I've seen from, you know, the the relevant minister from Brooke Van Belden. So Mm. your guess is as good as mine, Gillian. I think we just have to keep singing the refrain of, it's there, we know about it, we're still waiting to mm. see what that might be. Well, and there's nothing to, I mean, a bill hasn't been put into the House yet, we just know that the, you know they've been working on it. It's perfectly feasible that, that could, you know, what's in that and what was originally drafted coming out of the task force could change. So it's going to be, yeah, as you say, <laughs> one to watch, but not hopeful of any actual change anytime soon. Anything else um, that's on the horizon? that we need to be thinking about. What's going to be really interesting is watching for what's coming out of the courts, I think, Gillian. And I know one area that we've been talking about is worker status, which I know is a topic that is very dear to your heart and what we can see with worker status litigation because the Act has made some comments around do we want to put in legislation which essentially says if you are an employee you are an employee if you are a contractor you are a contractor and the choice of contract governs that situation we're not there yet so maybe it's time to talk about you know worker status litigation and what we've seen in that space so Julia, we you and I talk about this idea of worker status a lot um, and as you know legal minds we know what it means but it could be something that a lot of people actually don't grasp and we see it in the media quite a bit as well talking about worker status what is it it's the legal status of a worker and in new zealand you're either an employee or you're not so our law has lots of legislation around what employees get you've got the employment relations act and then a whole uh, constellation of legislation that sits around that employment relations act that gives rights to employees as workers and so employment status brings a lot from a legislative platform, both in terms of entitlements and in terms of protections. 
the other status is kind of everything else. Are you self-employed? Are you contractor? Do you run your own business? It's it's a, you know, your consultant. These are the labels, contractors. All those sorts of labels we see, none of them are legislated for. And then there's one other status, which is the volunteer status, which is separate again. But really, for the purposes of working and being paid for work, there's two, and it's employment, uh, and being an employee. And so that all sounds really clear, right? You choose, are you an employee or are you a contractor? But why is this getting so much airtime? Why do we care about worker status? Yep, so worker status has actually become a big conversation globally and different jurisdictions are doing different things with it. And I think the gig economy really shone a spotlight on it. But before that, you know, gig work being as popular as it is now, Contracting has always been a feature of the working landscape and New Zealand as a country made up of small to medium sized businesses, contracting is very prevalent and it's a preferred status for many people. There's tax benefits around it. And so where we sit now and why it's a big conversation is there's been focus around whether gig work in particular, but not exclusively, has that um, resulted in a diminution in terms and conditions for contractors and, and vo- what would be classed as vulnerable contractors. A good example of that was, so the, the last government uh, issued a report and they, d- they did a big piece of research and they issued the report in June 2020. And that report kind of flew a little bit under the radar because if you wind your mind back to June 2020, we were just out of that first COVID lockdown and we were grappling with what all of that meant. But that, that report was really interesting and it looked at where the, the government saw the problems and it, the different sectors were reported in that document as having problematic labour practices through contracting. Sectors like agri and forestry, midwifery, there was the arts, transport, gig gig work through transport so you know, looking at apps like Uber and, mm. and Zoomi and Ola uh, and that report canvassed a whole range of different sectors where contracting was prevalent and cleaning was another big one where you would have one of the issues was you'd say have a husband and wife cleaning company they would tender to clean a something whether it's a you know a school a building a house and you just pitch your number and hope you get it but the hours that you might spend relative to the income that you're going to get could be well below if you translated it into employment models well below the minimum wage that was a problem that was seen to be needing a fix and there was a lot of work done by the last government on that with uh, ultimately some suggestions to change our legal test. So our legal test in trying to determine whether someone's an employee or a contractor is what's the real nature of the relationship. So it's a very factual based assessment. You're looking at things like does the worker provide their own tools and equipment? How much control does the organisation have over the worker? Are, Are they integrated into the business? So, correct. You know, wearing the polo shirt with the business card with, dare I say yeah. it, the, the branded van. <laughs> I always look at that one as, would an outsider looking in look at that person as an employee of the company and identify that person as an employee of the company because the look and feel mm. is that they're integrated mm-hmm. yeah and so you've got this multi multi test that looks at many different things and the, and the proposal was to try and shift that and shift it towards really looking at whether or not the workers efforts benefited their own business or someone else's now the other piece to that proposal was also a suggestion that if a worker in a particular sector so couriers is a classic and there's some litigation happening at the moment around that which we can talk about couriers are an example of 
where they look and feel like part of the organisation. They've got their branded van, but the reality is they're contractors owning their own van, uh, typically. Now, one of the suggestions in the amendments was to, if you, if you ran a case as a single courier and were determined to be a employee rather than a contractor, one of the proposals was that that decision would set the precedent for others on a similar contract in the same business. Because at the moment, any case that a person runs about their status is about them only. The, our legislation puts a box around that. And there was a, su- a suggestion in the tripartite working group's paper from 2021 that this would have a bigger impact if you could have case law setting precedents across sectors rather than just addressing one individual case. Now, that proposal that was sitting within that tripartite working group paper didn't go anywhere because in the last government, the contractor worker status amendments were really sitting in second place to fair pay agreements, which were the priority to push through. We then had the change in leadership when Chris Hipkins came in and there was various policies were kind of put to one side and the contractor worker status piece was one of them. So we had a bit of good thinking done around where some problems may lie, some possible solutions, and then that put on ice. So from a legislative perspective, I don't think we're going to be seeing anything in that space in terms of pushing it to make it easier or to make bigger change from the current government. Uh, In in fact, it may go the other way. Which is what ACT is proposing, which I believe I mentioned earlier around if it's kind of choice of contract, right? You you choose, but the parties agree at the outset of the relationship. If you're a contractor, that's the contract that will govern your relationship, uh, and you can't then have a go under Section Six of the Employment Relations Act to challenge your status. And if you're an employee, you're obviously an employee, which is similar to what the High Court in Australia tried to do, which was you know choice of contract prevails. But then that was overturned and they're back to that multifactorial test which is where our legal landscape is at the moment and what our courts are seeing a lot of action in because as you, you've touched on it's that vulnerable bucket of workers and we say you know workers quite deliberately because they're performing work um, the cases that we've seen is, is certainly not for their own benefit in terms of you know the, the, the gain that's been that's been had so maybe Gillian you know you've been involved in some of these you know really critical bits of litigation if you want to take us through a bit of a summary of these cases mm. which have received a lot of publicity here and in the big ticket one is over which we know is is um, on appeal to the Court of Appeal but we see this throughout most of the Commonwealth jurisdictions mm. at the moment. Yeah, that, that's right. Just touching on the Uber appeal, that, that runs to the Court of Appeal in March, and then obviously it'll be a couple of months to, or more to get the decision. But that certainly be well watched. But I would predict that you know, there's, you know, that's a case that's being brought by the unions. There's two unions uh, bringing that piece of litigation on behalf of a small number of drivers. Four was the final count. There's quite a bit of skin in the game for both the unions and for the, the company in that case. And I would predict that regardless of the outcome, it'll be off up to the next level and it'll hit the Supreme Court because, well, why wouldn't you? You know, If either party doesn't get the outcome they want from the Court of Appeal, I would have, I would predict they would give that another shot. So where that will land will be interesting and it'll take a bit of time. And we've seen both parties, you know, looking at the UK where 
again, Uber was involved in litigation. Neither party was prepared to, if they had another option to appeal it, um, to get kind of a higher court's finding on the matter, they, they took it. So mm. that's clearly, as you said, you yeah. know, there's, there's skin in the game too. Yeah. Yeah, and what's happening here is what's happening um, in various different jurisdictions. So obviously we've had the, the Uber litigation, there's litigation involving courier companies. We've had, and you know, I think many people listening to this will have seen in the media last year, the two Gloria Vale cases. Now, whilst they were more about that question of whether somebody was a volunteer or an employee, it still looks to that same piece of um, legislation and that same section in our in our Employment Relations Act. Further elaboration on th- that worker status, right, and what all of the, the, the factors and facts that we can look to to establish whether someone is correctly categorised by an end user of their work. Look, I don't think this conversation is going to end anytime soon. I think for employers and well for any business in New Zealand, the key thing to be thinking about is, you know, what basis am I engaging a person on? Am I engaging them as a contractor or an employee? And actually turning your mind to it because it's not without risk. Some are more riskier than others, and it's for I think the businesses where your 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 entire business model is based on contractors. Those are the areas where you may come under scrutiny, particularly if those contractors are. Uh, taking home on an hourly basis, once you do the maths, a low income. Your highly paid consultant that's earning thousands of dollars a day, I'm, I'm not so sure is, is, is an issue. But the certainly that other end of the spectrum, that would be where scrutiny could come to bear. And when I look at other jurisdictions, it's interesting. So Canada, UK, Australia, there's various different ways in which their parliaments are trying to address the issue and proposing they've already got some legislation that does things that doesn't happen here. And they're creating a more middle ground. Whereas in New Zealand, we seem to be moving in a different direction where it's that Parliament's talking about something more polar. You described Act's proposals as a part of their manifesto coming into the election. And that is quite different to if I look across um, to Australia and to the UK and Canada, where they're really looking at more the, the fact that these you know, gig, gig work does give benefits to some workers that they enjoy. Yes, there can be an end of the spectrum where people can be vulnerable to abuse, but they're trying to find a middle ground where that model, where it is beneficial, can thrive. Whereas in New Zealand, we, we don't see to be there and I, I don't think that is going to happen anytime soon because the way our political setting is at the moment I think we're going to head more polar and then you're going to have the courts moving in in whatever direction the courts decide to move in so it's definitely going to be one to watch with some key decisions coming out and some appeals happening. And one other point that I might touch on is what do businesses or organisations need to be thinking about when engaging people But there's also another component to that, which is getting a lot of airtime, which is modern slavery, supply chain integrity. Yes. So whilst you might be, you know, employer, really certain about your business model uh, and how you want to engage your people, it's, you know, when looking at your suppliers, when looking at, you know, your cleaners, if that idea of sustainability is really critical to your business and your your consumers or for any contracts you engage in, especially with the government, actually understanding how those third parties are contracting with their people and 
being confident in that supply chain process. And I know we're not going to get into modern slavery at this podcast, I think. That's another That's podcast, a whole yes. Super interesting <laughs> topic uh, that we will absolutely touch on. But it's, again, one of those, what do you need to be thinking about as you head into the year, especially with that focus on that sustainable business and what people, consumers, clients expect from you. That's all we've got time for today. June, thank you very much for your insights and expertise. It's been great chatting through the things that uh, have been on our minds for a while and, and being able to share them with the audience. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please remember to rate, review, or follow Montreal's and Rodbots wherever you get your podcasts. You can subscribe to receive new episodes directly in your inbox via our website at montrealson.co.nz. June and I will be following up this podcast with further podcasts to touch on what we can expect from the courts and what we think the courts will do with the role of teacup nut in the workplace. 